This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, 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 yes. Thank you everyone for tuning into another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, once again, as always, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in. We are good to go for another show. Last week's mega episode really helped us catch up with everything that had happened, and now we're going to stay right on top of things with all the information we have to offer coming up in this here episode. Yeah, once again, we have a full docket of players to talk about. I'm very excited to get into everything. Before we start, let's mention we are presented by DauberHockey.com. Like I say every week, they're the best. It's the best fantasy hockey website out there. If you're listening to a fantasy hockey podcast, there's no reason why you shouldn't be going to this fantasy hockey website. You find all of your starting goalies, line combinations, articles, Daily Ramblings, it's all there, anything you need, plus they have this new guide out, a mid-season guide, which is fantastic because they give you projections for all the players for the rest of the season, and write-ups, and it's all great. They know what they're talking about, you gotta always be checking out DauberHockey.com, I love it. Yeah, the new guide released is the mid-season fantasy hockey guide. If you are a voracious reader of preseason guides, then why shouldn't you be reading a mid-season guide too? It's got all the same stuff, projections sleepers, trends, prospects, and essentially it's going to help you react to everything that has happened so far in the first half of the season that maybe you weren't expecting and you've got to get your bearings and figure out where to go next. This is one of the best ways to do it by checking out Dauber's Midseason Fantasy Hockey Guide. And I believe we'll reference it a couple times through the show. I just actually got my copy yesterday and it is a great read already. Yeah, one thing that's nice actually is that in all the projections it also has a up arrow or down arrow so you could get a quick glance of if Dobber thinks a specific player is going to be going up or down for the second half of the season. Handy little stuff. Like Brian said, maybe we'll reference it a bit throughout the episode. Let's get into things. Big blockbuster trade that happened earlier this week. Of course, we have to start with that. Ryan Johansson was traded from Columbus to Nashville for Seth Jones. Two players who are, you know, expected to be big stars for years to come. Though, of course, Ryan Johansson has already been a big star in the league and someone who has made a big fantasy impact. Seth Jones is someone that we're waiting for. I guess people have him in their keeper leagues, hoping that one day he'll be a big impact defenseman. Let's start with Ryan Johansson. This is a guy who had 71 points in 82 games last year, and a lot of people were projecting for him to do even better this year 
didn't really work out that way. In Columbus this year, he had 26 points in 38 games. He didn't seem to get along too well with the new coach. There were some games where he was getting low minutes. I think there was a healthy scratch at one point. Now he moves to Nashville, where he becomes the number one center in two games so far. He had that one great game to start against Colorado. He had a goal and an assist. Nashville lost the game. Then they lost again yesterday. Got shut out by Louis Demang in Arizona. So no points for Ryan Johansson there. But, Brian, I'm very curious to know your opinion. Is this good news or bad news for Ryan Johansson owners moving forward? This is wonderful news for Ryan Johansson owners. Now, you might not get to see the dividends immediately, but you are definitely going to be able to see more than you would have had he stayed in Columbus down the road. I mean, if we can just rewind back to the start of the season when he was being drafted in the first and second rounds of most fantasy drafts because of that breakout 71-point season that he had last year. Everybody thought, okay, it's on now, superstar for essentially the rest of his career. And then, well, Columbus happened. Columbus was not as good a team as a lot of people assumed they would be for whatever reason. And then John Tortorella was brought in to fix whatever problem that Columbus was having, which really just caused bigger problems for some players on the team, particularly Ryan Johansson, to the point that he was putting up just a 54-point pace through 38 games played with the Blue Jackets so far this year. It is a great thing for him to be out of Columbus, because obviously nothing good was happening there. He was getting beat up for things that necessarily weren't even his fault. Remember, Tortorella came, and then suddenly he was mysteriously injured, and then he was spent, and then he was scratched, and all sorts of things were happening, when if we take a look at his numbers, it's really simple to see at a glance what happened with him. It's not that he's taking fewer shots or getting fewer shot attempts for. He's actually in his IPP is higher than it has been in previous seasons, but his shooting percentage is down, and so is that of his teammates. Last year, his line with Nick Foligno especially was really, really not lucky, but just doing very well for themselves, maybe better than they should have, and that has also become apparent with Felino's follow-up season to last year's 70-point campaign of his own. He's got just 25 points in 39 games played so far this year. His shooting percentage is also down. Ryan Johansson is shooting at about 7.5%, which is like 5% less than we can expect him to shoot, and he was taking a lot of heat for it, so it's good that he's out of there, and he's finally with a team who can appreciate a player of his caliber who needs someone of his medal and is willing to give them the reins, because I think there are probably 25, maybe 28 other NHL teams who need this kind of player. Nashville has been dying to have a number one offensively capable forward for a very long time. Now, Mike Ribeiro has been the de facto guy. It's been a team that has featured Mike Fisher as their number one center in recent memory. So I think he's in a really good spot where they're going to need him to produce and they're not going to be afraid to let their new offensive weapon have some freedom to do what he does best. And of course, this is going to help some other players on the Nashville Predators. Now, the first person we thought this was going to help was Colin Wilson, who was suddenly going to be up on that first line with James Neal and Ryan Johansson. And of course, he got injured very quickly. He's day-to-day right now. He missed the team's most recent game. So it's back to being a Johansson-Neil Forsberg top line. And like you said, Elon, they got shut out against Arizona in their first full game together. So when Colin Wilson gets back, it'll be interesting to see whether or not he can slot back in on that top line. If he does, he's someone worth watching in your league. On the other hand, you have James Neal, who could really use a trigger man. It's not like Mike Ribeiro's a terrible one, but he's not someone who generates a whole lot of offense. You know, he gets a lot of his points from assists, doesn't take a lot of shots himself. 
Now there is another shooting threat on that top line that might be equal or better than James Neal, and that can only help James Neal get a little more space for himself and a few more opportunities as well. Yeah, I guess this is the kind of thing where at least on Nashville, we're going to have to wait and see which players are going to benefit and which players are going to be hurt. Obviously, the ones playing with Ryan Johansson get the biggest bump. And right now, if there's a line of Philip Forsberg, Ryan Johansson, and James Neal, that is a powerhouse line. And you'd expect some offense to come from it, even though it didn't happen yesterday. I guess it really hurts guys like Mike Fisher, who go from being in the top six to now being on the third line, playing with Victor Arvidsson and Cody Hodgson. Though it's not as if Mike Fisher had too much fantasy value anyways. At the end of the day, I think it's too early to tell which forwards this affects on Nashville, just because we don't know how the lines are going to shake out, especially now that Colin Wilson got injured, and we'll have to see, you know, a few games with him back and what they decide to do. I guess the people in Nashville who you can point to as maybe benefiting from this trade for sure are defensemen who are getting bumped up the death chart with Seth Jones out of town. So Ryan Ellis was already on a nice run, five points in his last nine games, and now he becomes more important to the team. Obviously, you've got Weber and Yozy. They were already ahead of Seth Jones and getting the majority of the minutes, and that's reason to think that maybe Seth Jones will do better, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But yeah, now Ellis, who was on the second power play, he obviously stays there. And then a guy like Matthias Ekholm, gets on the second power play, so we'll see if he can have an improvement. Speaking of Ellis, though, it looks like he's getting more ice time. In the two games since Johansson was acquired and Jones was traded, he's played 22 and 24 minutes, and that's much higher than I'm seeing more like 18, 19, 20 minutes that he was playing before that. So if you are in a deep enough league where a guy like Ryan Ellis is relevant, and hey, the way he's been playing lately, he might be, he's a guy who I might pick up. I don't know yet about the other Nashville forwards. I know a lot of people were going pretty crazy about Colin Wilson when they saw that he was going to be on the top line, but, you know, I'm not going to buy in just yet. Brian, I guess we should shift over and talk about what this means for Columbus. Yeah, before we get to Columbus, just my little wrap-up thought on your thoughts, which were all very good. Matthias Ekholm had two assists in his first game without Jones in the lineup, so apparently that could help him to get a little bit of a bump in ice time and roll, especially on the power play. And then who does it hurt? I think the only guy it hurts is the one guy who's bumped out of the top six. And right now, that looks like Mike Fisher, which is exactly what you said. I think Ribeiro might take a slight bump, but it's not like he was terribly valuable to begin with, although he had been on a nice little run. But essentially, Ryan Johansson gives the Preds an offensively deeper top six, and anybody in that top six is going to benefit with his inclusion. As for Columbus, well, the first guy I thought of immediately when Johansson was traded away was Alex Wenberg, who has been on a nice little run lately. Now, including the two games since Johansson has left where he has just one goal in those two games, he has 14 points in his last 16 games And he's not going unnoticed by his coach. In fact, there's a little news tidbit from the Columbus Dispatch that said he's one guy who really has not gotten in trouble with the coach so far. And I wonder if that's because he seems to block a couple shots every now and again. Like, I have him on my team. I just added him. And he's like the best non-defensive shot blocker on my squad right now, which is a really helpful thing if you're in a tight matchup and your league counts blocks. But even if it doesn't, his point scoring should be enough. And he played the most recent game on essentially what should be the top line with Brandon Saad and Scott Hartnell, and was also seeing power play time with those same two players on maybe the first unit. I mean, they saw the most power play time, but it's hard to really tell if there's a huge gap in talent between the first unit and the second right now in Columbus. But Alex Wenberg is the guy that I am most excited about with that extra top six center spot now definitely open in Columbus. The other Columbus player who, of course, is helped a little bit on the depth chart, not that he was having any trouble staying there because he seems to be one of Tortorella's current favorites, is Brandon Dubinsky. 
he might see a bit of an increased offensive role now, might be asked to take on more of the offensive burden, whereas before I think he was asked to be just a solid, steady energy guy who can put in a couple points as he goes. But I don't think he's a number one center type, which is why I'm more excited about Wenberg coming out of this trade than I am Dubinsky. Yeah, well, the thing about Dubinsky is it's hard to get excited about him in a league that doesn't count, you know, all of his peripherals, if we're just thinking about points, because he never really plays a full season. So when you look at his past few seasons, he's never had really exciting numbers. You know, last year he had 36 points, but it wasn't 47 games. The year before, 50 points in 76 games. But, you know, last year's pace was around 60 points. This year he's a bit below his pace right now, 22 points in 36 games. But I wouldn't be surprised if it could go up now that he has this increased offensive role. I see Dubinsky as a type of player that can put up a 60-point pace which is approximately three points in every four games. But there's, of course, the problem that he gets injured a lot. If I had to pick one right now, I think I'd still take Dubinsky over Wenberg, to be honest. Wenberg's on a nice streak, but if I'm thinking longer term, I have a feeling that Dubinsky has a better chance to stay on the top line and the top power play, or I guess how you're calling it, the 1A, 1B power play. But I definitely expect Dubinsky to be there and has a better chance to stay as opposed to Wenberg. I'm really surprised to hear you say that. I feel like the rest of the Columbus top six is fairly even, and essentially... Whoever's playing with Brandon Saad is on the top line, and right now that's Wenberg. I don't see why the Blue Jackets would put Dubinsky on that top line when that's never necessarily been his role in his career. Yeah, he's been okay. Maybe I sold him short as an energy guy who can put in a couple points here and there, but he's not the sort of person who should be headmanning an offensive top line. And Alex Wenberg is? Well, with 14 points in 16 games, I'm willing to wait and see. And again, remember we noticed him towards the end of last season? He and Marco Dano were the two exciting Blue Jackets who came up sort of out of nowhere and started producing and putting up good underlying numbers at the same time. So Wenberg isn't a total stranger to us right now. I'm willing to see how far he can run with the role he's got as a number one center. I think we know where Dubinsky's ceiling is. I'd rather find out where Wenberg's is rather than accept Dubinsky's ceiling is the best I'm going to get. (laughs) Okay, I mean, I guess I would say if I was picking someone up in the short term, like someone's on the IR and I'm going to pick someone up who I know I'm going to drop eventually once the player becomes healthy again, maybe I'd go Wenberg. If I'm thinking long term, I'd still go Dubinsky. So I guess we have a disagreement. Brian, we've been talking about this trade for so long. We have to talk about Seth Jones. Here's a guy who was drafted fourth overall a few years ago in the same draft as McKinnon and Barkov and Druin, who we talked about last week. Top defenseman drafted. A lot of people thought he would be able to step in. Like he played his first season after being drafted. A lot of people thought he would step in and make a big impact. And, you know, fantasy-wise, he hasn't yet made an impact, right? 25 points in 77 games in his first year. Then he had 27 points in 82 games last season. This year, only 11 points in 40 games with Nashville. Now he's come to Columbus. Nothing there yet. No points. And I'm not sure if we can really expect the breakout to happen, at least not this year. It's not like he's come in and taken over as the number one defenseman. So far in these two games, it's still Jack Johnson and David Savard playing the top minutes. Though I guess if you look deeper, Seth Jones actually has more even strength minutes along with Ryan Murray. It's just that Johnson and David Savard are playing a lot shorthanded, and that was a lot of the minutes in the game yesterday against Carolina. So I guess we'll see how it shakes out. But these are kind of the top four, and it doesn't seem like anyone is really standing out over the others, just kind of like how it was before with the Columbus defense. It just gets even more crowded back there. So I guess good for Columbus, not that they've been able to win since this trade, but good for them that they have a strong defense and lots of options there. But I'm still definitely not ready to buy in on Seth Jones as a fantasy defenseman that I could rely on, especially not this year. Me neither. I mean, we've had a lot of talk about the Columbus decor this year, waiting to see if one of them could start running away with that power play 
quarterback mantle. And between Johnson, Murray, and Savard, they've both gotten fair shakes. And at times, they've been able to put up a few points here and there. But it hasn't necessarily been enough to be relevant in even like a league where most teams only carry four defensemen. Like they're not any of them, say, in the top 45, 50 defensemen by most league scoring settings. So what makes Seth Jones different? I'm not sure there's anything that really does set him apart offensively on the power play from the rest of those guys. I wonder if there's maybe just an actual power play problem in Columbus that needs to be fixed or it's the personnel up front that are not helping get the blue liners their points. But right now, Seth Jones, I suppose his power play production is like the only thing that might be a silver lining. If you look at his career in terms of fantasy production, he had nine power play points in his rookie season, 11 power play points in his next season. He has four so far this year in 40 games with Nashville, which puts him on about a similar pace, but this is not the power play production that we want to see from a defenseman on our fantasy teams. Usually, Someone should have nine points already, and even then, that would just be like on the low end to just barely make a fantasy owner happy. Also, if you look everywhere else at Seth Jones' peripherals, he's never been much more than a shot-per-game guy, a block-per-game guy, a hit-per-game guy. He hasn't even been a plus player in his career. He's a minus 27, over 200 games, with a fairly defensively strong team. So I'm not, like, raising the alarm necessarily about Seth Jones' usefulness as a hockey player, but as someone taking up a roster spot on your fantasy team, I'm not sure he passes the smell test at this point in his career. Okay, and yeah, the last thing I want to say about this is, yeah, maybe Seth Jones will get more power play time in the best case, but... We are talking about a team who we were just arguing about who's the better top center, Alex Wenberg or Brandon Dubinsky. So, you know, this isn't a power play with Ryan Johansson. I don't know how good this Columbus offense is really going to be this season. So, yeah, for everyone who rushed to grab Seth Jones, wanting to see what would happen, I think it's been two games. And so far, definitely time to start considering who your other options are. Okay, Brian, let's move on. Still so many players I wanted to talk about this week. Maybe let's talk about a couple of outjuries, some players who have come back recently and are making impacts right away. We could start with David Pasternak, who we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We said he was doing really well in the World Juniors. We knew he was going to be coming back to the Bruins. He came back. It's been two games so far. And yesterday, he scored a goal. And I've got to say, I'm liking this situation for David Pasternak. Yesterday, he played on a line with Patrice Bergeron and Brad Marchand. And with two guys like that, you'd expect the points to come. He scored that goal. And this reminds me a lot of last year. You know, he came in for his rookie season and made an impact right away. Ended up with 27 points in 46 games, which is pretty decent for a rookie, especially at his age. Just 19 years old. Oh my god. He's a baby. And obviously, David Krejci will come back at some point. We'll see how the lines shake out. But, you know, last year, Pasternak and Krejci, I believe, played together. So I definitely don't expect him to be on the team and not in a top six role. Or I guess, actually, I shouldn't say that. You never know what could happen. But it seems to me like Pasternak is going to be put in a position to pick up points. I like him. I suppose the argument could be made that Pasternak's play has been underwhelming ever since that like initial little run he had, and he goes on a little scoring binge every now and then. But for the most part, if you look at his numbers in 12 games so far this year, he has five points, only 27 shots on goal. And last year, after that initial outburst, he ended up with just 93 shots in 46 games, along with 27 points, which, by the way, as an 18-year-old, is a pretty fantastic total. It's just not necessarily where we had set the bar based on what he came in doing. So I think if you readjust your expectations to remember, okay, he's 19 years old. He's not going to be taking five, six, seven shots every other game. He's not going to be scoring goals in bunches all the time. But he is going to be a consistent 
top six producer getting opportunity both at even strength and on the power play, then you'll begin to see the value in David Pasternak. Three shots on goal since he returned. One of them went in, and it was actually a pretty nice tip. It was the only goal that beat Craig Anderson on Saturday night. There's definitely talent here. There's pedigree here. There's a lot to get excited about. But if it doesn't necessarily translate to anything more than a 50-point pace over the course of the season, don't be disappointed in it. You just have to know what you're getting with Pasternak for this season, maybe the next one. And then in the years to come, I really do think he's going to develop. So if you are in a keeper format or you can keep someone in your minor league system if your league is set up that way, Pasternak is absolutely a good player to own. Yeah, and really quickly, since we're still on the Bruins, we keep mentioning him every week. Ryan Spooner continues to produce. He had a great week last week since we last talked to you guys. Had an assist against Washington, goal and assist against New Jersey. No points yesterday against Ottawa. Bruins only scored one goal, but he did get his ice time, his power play. Ryan Spooner's still really good also. Brian, if you had to take someone right now, Spooner or Pasternak, who would you take? I'd take Spooner because he's already rolling, and we've seen him do it for a reasonable amount of time, even with some of those concerning numbers that we talked about last week week about how his production might not necessarily be sustainable at this rate. I think even at a decreased rate, his production will probably be about the same as Pasternak's going forward. Yeah, at least while Krejci is injured and Spooner's a top six center. Seems like he's the more reasonable choice for now. Okay, another outjury that a lot of people had been anticipating. James Reimer is finally back in the Leafs net. He's played one game so far, made 45 saves. They didn't take it easy on him, even though he had that long layoff. It was a tough loss against LA. But yeah, James Reimer doesn't appear to have very much rust on him. And this is a guy having an amazing season, a 937 save percentage in 18 games. And, you know, Jonathan Bernier actually did pretty well since coming back up from his stint in the minors. Like, he had a bunch of good games in a row. Yesterday, he totally stunk up the place in San Jose, though I'd imagine when you lose 7-0, it's not only the goalie's fault, plus the Leafs wouldn't have won anyway since they couldn't score any goals. Seems to me, though, like, if you're the Toronto Maple Leafs, you have to be playing James Reimer at this point. Give him the ball and let him play until he convinces you to do otherwise. Like, Bernier's had his chance. He's done okay, but Reimer has been fantastic. If Reimer is a free agent in your league, I would be picking him up right now. For sure. Reimer definitely fits the profile for most fancy teams as a number three goalie. And if he gets enough starts, he could be good enough to be a number two goalie in your league. My only thing stopping him from being a number one goalie as well. He hasn't played a ton this season. He's coming off injury. He's already been in and out of the lineup without playing a game, going back to -to day-to-day status after being recalled from the IR. So, like, you know, there's something wonky there that still has not yet been resolved. But yeah, if you've got that number two or number three spot and you're looking to fill it and Reimer's available, you should definitely add him to your team. Now, the only thing that could be going against him going forward, well, actually, there's a couple. The first is that Bernier, like you said, Elon, finally strung together Actually, three good starts. He had three consecutive wins against three very good scoring teams. Well, I guess two and a team that should be in Pittsburgh, St. Louis, and the team that should have been was Anaheim. He stopped 39 shots in each of those three games. So amazing value for anyone whose league counts wins, saves, and obviously save percentage. One of those games was a shutout. And it was even more impressive because all year he hadn't even been able to string together two consecutive quality starts since way back in his third and fourth starts of the season. Aside from that, it's just been a disaster for him. And last night was like, oh gosh, seven goals against. Here's Jonathan Bernier again. But like you said, Elon, he was hung out to dry on a couple of those. That was more of a team letdown than just a Jonathan Bernier letdown, which we've seen our share of so far this season. The other thing to consider with which goalie is going to see more time or if they're going to share the net or exactly how the crease is going to be split going forward 
between Bernier and Reimer is what the Leafs are trying to do through the rest of the season. I imagine if they're looking to tank, then they give Bernier at least as many games as they give Reimer. I imagine if they're trying to sell one of the two on the trade market, then that one is going to see more time also. And I feel like both of those factors are definitely at play here. So it's not as cut and dry as well. Reimer is likely the better goalie. He's going to see the most time. I think there are other sort of organizational goals that they're going to be using their crease time to strategically meet over the course of the rest of the year. I still like Reimer if I had to choose between the two. I don't necessarily think Bernier is a goalie worth rostering if Reimer is seeing, you know, at least two out of every three starts, especially since if Bernier does start, the odds that he's going to blow that one in three starts of his are actually fairly high. Yeah, I'd say maybe if you have Bernier, give it a couple of games, make sure Reimer's actually healthy before dropping him. But yeah, once Reimer is in a role and doing well, I don't think there'll be much value in holding Bernier either. Okay, Brian, next team, next outchery. Let's move to Arizona. Martin Hansel is back again. I feel like every season of Keeping Carlson, every once in a while, we talk about Martin Hansel being injured, Martin Hansel being back. And you might think, why do we even talk about Martin Hansel? And the thing is, like, he's the kind of guy that is valuable when he plays. We've mentioned it before when he started the season on that amazing run. He's been on a 60-point pace, a lot like Brandon Dubinsky. For the last few seasons of his career, a guy who does give value to your fantasy team, he's just always injured. But you know what? He's been back now for two games after missing 11 of 12 with a lower body injury, and he has two points. Got a goal in the first game against Calgary, got an assist yesterday against Nashville. And I don't know what to say. Like, I'm a Martin Hansel fanboy. I like him. I think that he's decent. He puts up a decent amount of shots usually. He gets an okay share of power play time, and he seems to be in on a lot of the goals that Arizona scores. And Arizona's been a good team lately. And maybe I'm pushing too hard. I mean, I don't want to say that Martin Hansel is like, a fantasy elite guy that you need to have, but he's only 27% owned on ESPN, and I think the number should be higher than that. So if he's a free agent in your league, take a look. Yeah, 27% owned is definitely too low for a player who has 22 points in 28 games so far this season. But Elon, I do take issue with him being a slam dunk kind of ownership guy, especially seeing that, well, he has less than two shots per game on average this season, just 53 shots in 28 games which means essentially that he's going to need to rely on his teammates to score so that he can pick up assists on their goals. And that's actually what's happened for him this season. And that's why things are working out so well. Why he's on one of the best point paces of his career is because his teammates shooting while he's on the ice right now is above 12%, when really it should be closer. You know, somewhere between 8 and 10% would be a little more reasonable. So I expect there to be some regression in there for Martin Hansel. It's great that he's come back from injury and been able to get two points again right away. And six shots as well, beating out his own season average in both games so far in terms of shots on goal. But looking at his numbers, nothing has really changed from this season to last except the shooting success of his teammates while he's on the ice. So I would expect his fortunes to be tied to that. He needs them to keep going at an above-average rate for him to keep picking up those assists. If they do regress back to what would be expected, he's going to fall off the pace that he's on right now, but I agree, he's still probably worth owning in a lot of formats. Yeah, again, I don't mean to say that I think he's like now a 70-80 point player. I think he's going to hit that 60-point pace that he always seems to do. So if that has value to you, that's when I'd say to add him. As far as his shots on goals go, he's like all over the place. Like If you look at his game log, there's some games where he's had 5 and 6, and then other games where he's had 0 and 1. So yeah, he's averaged, I guess, to a game once you work it all out. But he is the kind of guy that could give you a good amount of shots in a given week, for whatever that's worth. 
It's weird. I don't know how that happens, that he could go from getting six shots one game to zero the next. Though I guess he has a teammate that he could relate to in Shane Doan, who we have to just mention again because he's just kept it going. Had a two-goal game a few games ago against Vancouver, a power play assist yesterday against Nashville. I know, Brian, you're not sold yet. You don't think it's going to last. I'm not saying necessarily I think it's going to last long-term either. I'm still liking Shane Doan, and he's getting a lot of shots. Like He's the epitome of someone who normally was getting just one or two shots a game, and all of a sudden lately, he's been getting like four, four, five. Last game against Nashville, he only had two shots. That was his worst shooting performance since December 26th against LA, like so many games ago. Ever since then, he's been well above two shots. But hey, you got that power play assist yesterday. So here's another Arizona guy that you may want to look at if you have a roster spot to fill in your league. Yeah, you and I have been going back and forth on Shane Doan all week long. You being so excited about him and me just wondering what it's going to take for the wheels to fall off because I really don't think this is something that can last. He's scoring at a clip right now that essentially he hasn't scored at for like two years since I'd say since back at the beginning of the 2013-14 season. And I think what we agreed to was that essentially he started doing this when Hansel went out to injury. So we thought, okay, what would happen when Hansel came back? And then he did manage a point last night, but his ice time has gone down since Hansel's come back. He had seven consecutive games where he played above like 19 and a half minutes. And then the two games since Hansel's been back, he has seen 16 minutes and almost 18 minutes in the other one. So we see an immediate hit to the amount of ice he's seeing. And I imagine now that the Coyotes are icing a full and mostly healthy lineup once again, Doan is not going to be able to get the opportunity he was getting to keep putting up points at that pace. I also just feel like he can't do that anyway. He's never really scored like this for so long. And I can't think of any other example of a player essentially going into their declining years, sort of falling off completely, and then rejuvenating their career completely again. Whatever we're seeing from him, whether or not he's doing it with Hansel in the lineup, I'm just not optimistic that he's going to keep putting up whatever he's been doing lately, which is 12 points in 12 games. Just for perspective, before that, he was just on a half point per game pace, which is essentially the best I think you can expect for him over the rest of the season you know, save for whatever the tail end of this spurt will bring. Yeah, well, if we're still in the spurt, there's still time to get in on some of it. Looking at the current lines for Arizona, Doan isn't in the best position. He's playing, I guess, on the third line with Jordan Martinuk and Brad Richardson, which is not as good as playing with Hansel, Ryder, Duclair in line two, or Bodker, Domi, and Vermette on line one, though Doan still is on the top power play. They're going with Bodker, Shane Doan, Tobias Ryder, and Antoine Vermette with, obviously, OEL on the back end. Interesting that Martin Hansel's not there, so we'll see how that shakes out. Tobias Ryder, by the way, also having a nice little run. Had two goals and assists yesterday. But okay, let's move on from Arizona. We still have more outjuries. Jeff Carter came back after being out for a few games, scored a goal right away. That's interesting. You know, obviously you want to have Jeff Carter if you can. The noteworthy thing here, though, is that he did not get his line mate Tyler Toffoli back. Toffoli stayed on the top line with Anze Kopitar, and Carter is now playing with Gabrick and Pearson. So for those who were worried about Toffoli losing the magic that he's been able to put up lately with Anze Kopitar, it looks like the Kings are going to be keeping that line intact for now at least. As they should with the success that they've been seeing, but that's not necessarily going to be a problem for Jeff Carter. Remember last year on that 70s line with Tanner Pearson and Toffoli, he was able to produce a lot. And now with Pearson and Gabrick, he's doing okay. He had five shots in the most recent game, which whether or not he picks up a point, if somebody puts up five shots in a game, I'm happy without output. And we mentioned Jeff Carter last week as the only player not named Kopitar in LA to crack the 60-point barrier within the last five years. 
He's on pace to do that again. It's worth mentioning he's on pace for 66 points at the moment, and I just like what I'm seeing from him. He's been a really steady producer, at least in one category or the other throughout the whole season. He can once again be counted on for about, you know, 25, 27 goals and as many assists or more. I'm not really sure what there is to say here because I imagine he's really on a lot of rosters already right now. So there's not a whole lot you can do. But if you have Jeff Carter, I suppose I'm saying feel good about it. Maybe I guess one thing I will say is that I keep mentioning that Tafoli's on the first line with Anze Kopitar. There is another person on that line who is Milan Lucic. And I wonder if Lucic is almost in that space where we might need to be calling him a snoozer. Like, he had a nice run when he first came up to the top line, but lately he only has three points in his last 10 games. He got an assist yesterday against St. Louis for what that's worth, but overall now he has 24 points in 41 games, which isn't the pace that a lot of people expected from him coming to the top six in L.A., And at this point, I don't know, he doesn't take that many shots. And normally I don't want to suggest dropping a guy who's on the first line of their team. But if there was someone to be concerned about, it would be Milan Lucic. I don't know how long he'll keep that first line position with the way he's been playing. Yeah, he has more penalty minutes in his last 10 games with 20 than he does shots with 15. And the really only saving grace he has on that top line is that the Kings aren't very deep at left wing. Their other options are essentially Tanner Pearson and Dwight King, and I suppose the newly acquired Vinny LeCavalier, but who are we kidding? He's not actually a first-line option. So I suppose as long as Kopitar and Toffoli are going, and the second line is also doing reasonably well at scoring, I think Lucic might as well just be there as the de facto top-line left winger. But I agree, that shouldn't fool you into thinking of him as a must-own player. You've got to make sure that he's producing up to the role that he's supposed to be playing. And right now, he definitely is not and is entering snoozer territory. Yeah, I mean, he's still also on the top power play in LA, so he has the opportunity. But if you have Lucic, maybe you're getting concerned. One of our patrons, Dan, asked us to talk about some snoozers this week. There's one for you, Dan. I actually have a few more we'll get to later in the show. And Brian, we're still talking about outjuries. How about let's talk about a couple of players who aren't back yet, but should be coming back soon. Word is that Robin Leonard will be coming to the Buffalo Sabres Very soon, he's been playing in the AHL, and it's not as if Chad Johnson or Linus Olmark have made a sterling case for why they should be keeping the number one job. So we'd expect Robin Leonard to get a shot to be the number one goalie once again for Buffalo. Hopefully he'll be able to play more than a game or two before getting injured. Yeah, there's still a lot to see from Robin Leonard. I think people are excited about having him back because number one goalie on an okay team, like not a great team for sure, Buffalo, but much better than they were last year. But Leonard's never really shown us the success that we'd want to see in a number one goalie or someone we own on our fantasy team. Brian, I know you have Robin Leonard in the Keeping Carlson patron-only fantasy league. What do you expect from him when he comes back? Oh boy, I don't expect a whole lot, to be perfectly honest with you. I expect saves, and that's essentially it. I think the Sabres are still really interested in giving Leonard a number one-like workload to see how much of it he can handle and what exactly he can offer the team going further into the future. He is signed till the end of next season, and I imagine by then they really want to have a good idea of whether or not he should be the guy to be in their crease as they have this whole rebuild going on and a lot of really promising young talent going on there. They don't want it to fall apart in net. Unfortunately, so far this season for the Sabres, neither of their two other goaltending options have really run away with the job. Chad Johnson, Linus Allmark, both posting um, mediocre-ish save percentages and putting in mediocre performances in the opportunities they've seen. So at least that makes it easy 
for them to give the reins to Leonard. And so anybody who has Leonard on their team should be excited about at least getting game time and having the prospect of picking up a lot of saves and some wins here and there as well. Unfortunately, I'm not sure you can count on save percentage just yet. Robin Leonard has had one rehab start so far in the AHL. And we're not going to take anything from the result, which was a 5-4 win for the Rochester Americans. He stopped 24-28 shots for an 8.57 save percentage, which is not great, but it was his first full professional hockey game in more than 11 months. So you can give the guy a little bit of slack. He didn't start the next game for the Americans. I hope he comes back to the NHL soon because ESPN has already bumped him off of his IR status. So he's actually on my roster right now, even though he's in the AHL. I need him back. If he's available in your league, I wouldn't rush to grab him if you've already got a solid two or three goalies on your roster. However, if you are trying to string together enough minimum starts to meet your league's required numbers, or you're rolling with like Frederick Anderson right now or Anders Nielsen, Robin Lehner is probably automatically a better option than those two guys once he does get called up to begin his work in the NHL. Yeah, I guess the thing you just need to keep in mind if you're getting too excited about Robin Leonard coming back is he has a 914 overall save percentage in his career. So he hasn't been like an amazing goalie ever. I'm not sure if being the goalie in Buffalo is an opportunity to improve that compared to the opportunities he had in Ottawa. Though Ottawa also wasn't the best defensive team back when Leonard was on them. It'll definitely be interesting to see. He's only played one game so far this year before he got injured. I'm curious to see what Robin Leonard could do as the number one goalie in the NHL. The other player I wanted to mention coming back soon, word is that Nail Yakupov is potentially going to be coming back next week to the Oilers. I guess we've already talked about this before, but just someone to keep on your radar. We really don't know what's going to happen with that top six. McDavid apparently won't be back until after the All-Star break. I still don't think Yakupov has much value if he's not playing with Connor McDavid, especially because that top six is pretty hard to crack right now in Edmonton. You know, they're pretty stacked. I guess maybe Benoit Pouliot could get bumped, but I don't know. I wouldn't jump to grab Yakupov unless it's a really deep league and you're going to anticipate when he might be playing with Connor McDavid. Yeah, the other player spot who maybe he can take for a brief period of time, like a game here, there's Teddy Purcell, who's playing right now with Dreisaitl and Taylor Hall, although Purcell has been doing very well there. I feel like most players could do pretty well there in that role, although we have talked about how Purcell has excelled in his career at playing that complimentary winger. And I don't know if Yakupov can necessarily do the same thing, but I imagine the Oilers are going to want to give him a turn or two in their top six before McDavid comes back, and I imagine it might come at the expense of Teddy Purcell. But nothing for Purcell owners to be overly worried about, that is. I think you can hang on to him and just wait it out. Unless you see Yakupov stay there for like three, four games at a time, then you need to be concerned. One or two games, don't get too worried. Yeah, at the end of the day, we do have to remember that Nail Yakupov has 12 points in 22 games this season. And aside from little stretches, has never really shown himself to be a reliable fantasy producer. There was a stretch last year near the end. And then, of course, this year when he was playing with McDavid and Pouliot, that's the thing we could be excited about. I'm not too worried about him stealing a spot on that top line with Hall and Dreisaitl. Okay, let's move to quickly talk about some of the injuries that have happened over the past week and the implications. Yuri Hoodler is out for Calgary. Looks like he'll be out at least a week. We don't know exactly how long yet. And, you know, he hasn't been having that great of a season. Maybe this is actually 
a good opportunity for someone else to get on that top line with Gojo and Monahan. Right now, it looks like it's been Joe Colborn on that top line and actually getting time on their top power play, which is very surprising. You never really see Joe Colborn in the box scores. But it's an interesting situation. Like for Yuri Hoodler, who only has 20 points in 35 games this season, he's injured. I'd be surprised if Colborn steals his spot, so he'll probably get back on the top line. Brian, is there any value in Colborn in the short term? And also, what do you think about Yuri Hoodler so far? Can he still bounce back? You know, he's not going to get the 70 points that he had last year, but can he at least be a reliable fantasy guy on your team? Well, starting with Colburn, he hasn't been able to do much on that top line, but essentially that's what's going to happen when Goudreau and Monaghan aren't doing much either. They have not scored an even-strength goal or assist between the two of them in the last five games. So obviously, if that continues, Colburn has very little value to you or your fantasy team. He's only going to get like residual value. He's not going to be somebody who can drive offense or create plays. You just have to hope that when Gaudreau or Monaghan or say Giordano or Brody cash in, he's one of the last people to touch the puck. As for Hoodler, yeah, he's currently on his worst 82-game pace since 2010. That was back when he was still on Detroit. What happened? Why, like, the huge drop from last year? Well, I think part of the answer is why the huge bump from the year before last. And the reason for why he's going back to somewhat normal is that his IPP has gone back to where it should be at about 70-75% rather than the 90% that he saw last year. His shooting percentage is also Less than half what it was last year. It's like a full 10% lower than it was last year, going back from about a 19.5 shooting percentage to a 9.5 shooting percentage. The true shooting percentage of Yuri Hoodler is probably somewhere in the middle. So he's not only doing worse than he was last year, but he's also not doing as well as he usually did before last year. And he's bounced around a bit on the depth chart this year too, but hopefully he gets a fresh start with Monaghan and Gaudreau when he returns. Clearly, he's probably a useful piece to both of those when he's on the ice with them. And that's what I'm hoping for when he comes back to the lineup. For now, I think your Flames forwards that you're interested in are Monaghan, Goudreau, end of story. I don't think Colburn is somebody worth rostering. Yeah, and I guess maybe Sam Bennett in the future not really doing much right now either. Yes, just a few weeks ago that we were lauding Johnny Goudreau for just being a fantasy beast. He had that hat trick against Winnipeg near the end of December, and then he followed it up with two goals against Edmonton. But since that, he has gone completely cold, aside from a goal in his last game against Arizona. You'd have to expect he's going to bounce back soon. I wouldn't be too worried if I'm a Johnny Gaudreau owner, but yeah, I agree. Joe Colborn, it's a nice situation that he's in, but come on. It can't happen. I guess stranger things have happened, but I wouldn't be banking on it. Okay, another injury. Just a few more to mention. Okay, Mike Camilleri is injured on New Jersey. He's been out for a while. I think this is interesting because first of all, you know, it's a bummer. Camilleri's been having an amazing season, but he has slowed down a bit before he got injured. Hopefully he won't be out for long. But I think this has an interesting impact on the rest of the team because, you know, New Jersey had all of those players who were doing so well. Henrique, Stempniak. Everyone has kind of slowed down, so I think now is a good time to take a look at the Devils and see what can we expect from them moving forward for the rest of the season. Let's start by focusing on Camilleri, just to give him some kudos for what he's been able to manage this season, although everybody who owns him, including me, I think we've gotten what's coming to us. It's been a dream season for Camilleri so far, so obviously he was about to get injured because that happens to him every year. The good news is he might be back by the end of the week. But he's been able to do so well this year, not necessarily because his own play has changed a whole lot, but the shooting success of his teammates has, and not necessarily 
to an unreasonable extent. So it's not necessarily like a Martin Hansel situation where the teammates are shooting way better than they should be. It's that just teammates are shooting at a more reasonable rate than they were before this year. And he's been able to get to a point-per-game pace because of that. But it's been hard to really tell on New Jersey who's the straw that stirs the drink in their offense right now. And I suppose a reasonable argument could now be made that it was Camilleri to some extent, and that wouldn't be surprising. Since he's been out, we've had two players replace him, actually three players replace him on the first line, having a turn each. We had Mike Sislo called up from the AHL. He didn't do anything. He was demoted. We had Tyler Kennedy, who, surprise, surprise, he's on the New Jersey Devils. He played a game or two, got injured, is now out of the lineup. And then currently, most recently, actually, it was Sergei Kalinin, who had three shots on goal in his game so far alongside Henrik and Stempniak. No points, though, but still a decent showing. Zajac is the one who gets the power play bump with Camilleri out. He moves up to the top unit, which leaves the second unit looking like this. It's Stempniak, Stefan Mateau, Sergei Kalinin, and Jordan Tutu. That has to be one of the weirdest second power play units in the entire league this year. As you would expect, they haven't seen a whole lot of success. In any case, all this to say, I wouldn't make any huge adjustments based on the Camilleri injury. I wouldn't try and grab whoever's playing in his spots in the lineup. I would just hope that he can get back as projected, hopefully by the end of the week. He's about to miss his fifth game. Hopefully he's not at a whole lot more so he can get back to the outstanding season that he's been having so far. Yeah, I think if you're going to be making any transactions with the New Jersey Devils, you might want to be making them drops and not ads because we have quite a few of them heading into snoozer territory. Like, look at a guy like Lee Stempniak. He's still 91% owned in ESPN, but he only has seven points in his last 14 games. And overall, that leaves him with 29 points in 42 games on the year. And, you know, 29 points in 42 games would be a decent pace. He was almost at a point per game at one point, which was crazy. He's really fallen off. And like you say, he's off the top power play, even with Mike Camilleri out. So don't be fooled by this high ownership for Lee Stempniak. I'm not too excited about him. He only has one assist in his last four games, ever since he's been knocked off the top line in the top power play. As you would predict, his production has gone down a lot. Even a guy like Adam Henrique, who we thought was maybe breaking out, he only has five points in his last 12 games. I guess one guy I'd still be interested in is Kyle Palmieri. He's still doing well, nine points in his last 14 games which for the Devils isn't that bad. And I guess Henrique still has the opportunity to do well. But, you know, we are talking about guys who are all, you know, 60-point max probably this year. And the paces they were on before, I think that was a bit crazy. I Hopefully I didn't add to the hysteria about how excited we were about the Devils. They were all on great runs. But right now, aside from Camilleri, I'm not too excited about any of them, to be honest. And especially Lee Stempniak. He's someone who I'm going to be calling a snoozer right now. Lee Stepniak, snoozer. I like that about you, Elon. You say what you're going to do, and then you deliver. I think <laughs> you're totally right about Lee Stepniak. Adam Henrique is definitely in the danger zone there, too. Anyone who thought Travis Zajac had any value earlier this year, well, maybe you were right at the time, but not any longer. Mike Camilleri is really the only devil that I absolutely want to own. Like you said, Elon, Kyle Palmieri is a guy worth consideration, but otherwise there's not anybody else that I must have on my roster right now. The only consideration is that when Camilleri comes back, Henry and Stempniak can get going a little bit again. And at that point, they might be worth re-adding to your roster. But in the meantime, I don't think they offer you a whole lot of value. Okay, one more set of injuries before we start talking about some players of note and some other things. But there were three injuries from one team in one game. This was brutal. On Friday, Jake Allen, Paul Stasny, and Jay Bomeister all went down for St. Louis and didn't play the next game. 
Jake Allen is already on the IR. So let's start with him. Brian Elliott came in. He got a win yesterday when he played the full game against LA. To me, it seems pretty obvious. If Brian Elliott is a free agent in your league, might as well grab him. I think he's going to have value while Allen is out. We don't know yet how long Allen will be out for, though. Yeah, with Allen, it was something with his knee. The only news we've had so far is that he wasn't wearing a boot or brace leaving the arena. So that is good news. Although knee injuries are not always easy to get over anyway, so we'll have to wait and see with him. The good news is that Brian Elliott should be fairly capable in replacing him. And in a lot of leagues, Brian Elliott has been made available because he's essentially a straight-up number two goalie this year. So that gives you an option to hurry up and grab Brian Elliott before anybody else gets him if you're looking to add another goalie on your roster. Elliott so far this year, he's actually had a 9.26 percentage or higher in six of his last eight appearances, although consistency has always been a problem and it's what lost him the number one job to Jake Allen, although I suppose age was also a factor in that decision as well. He'll still be playing on a pretty good team. He'll still be putting up pretty good numbers on a pretty regular basis. If Allen is out for a week or two, Elliot should be rostered in pretty much every fantasy league. Yeah, and especially if you have Allen, you definitely want to grab Elliot because otherwise you're out of luck and losing a whole team's worth of goaltending. Then with Paul Stasny injured, I'm looking at St. Louis's lines from yesterday, and it's it's not pretty. Like I'm an Alex Steen owner in a couple of leagues. He was playing with Troy Brower and Patrick Berglund. Tarasenko was playing with Lettera and Robbie Fabry. So I guess actually this is good news for Yori Lettera, who sort of went into complete obscurity once Paul Stasny came back and even a bit beforehand. But playing with Vladimir Tarasenko is always a good thing. And Lettera did get an assist yesterday on a goal from Alex Pietrangelo. Vladimir Tarasenko had the primary assist. So yeah, this is good news, and maybe Laterra makes a decent short-term ad. I'm kind of hoping that St. Louis will shake up these lines, put Steen with Tarasenko. Yeah, that's really the only way to roll in St. Louis, isn't it? If you look at their lines, without that one line together, Steen and Tarasenko and Stasny or whoever the third is, there's not really one line that necessarily strikes fear into any opponent. I won't reread the lines, Elon, because you essentially just did. I would say right now the line to watch is probably Berglund, Brower, Steen, Although, of course, any line with Tarasenko is likely to get a point every now and again, as Tarasenko can do it himself. There's been a lot of despondence from St. Louis fans over the last few weeks. They're not matching up well against the better teams in the league. They're having difficulty scoring against some of the worst teams in the league, as evidenced by their game against Toronto just recently this past week. The whole team is in kind of a downswing right now, and I suppose now we can see why. There seem to be some clear depth issues at this point anyway. I mean, you wonder right now, why did they trade TJ Oshie for Troy Brower? Because this lineup, this depth chart, would look a lot better right now if TJ Oshie were in it. Yeah, no doubt about it. And then, I guess, the impact of Jay Bomeister. Bomeister's not a guy who's owned in that many fantasy leagues. Like, he's a very reliable guy, plays big minutes, even gets some second-unit power play time. I doubt anyone is wringing their hands about the loss of Bomeister, but maybe this is an opportunity for someone. Like, maybe Colton Pareko. I see he's played over 20 minutes in the two games since Bomeister has been injured. So maybe short-term Pareko could do something. So far, he hasn't done anything, though. I'm kind of over him for this year at this point, even if Jay Bomeister is out for a while. Right. I believe we called Pareko a snoozer a while back. He's still snoozing, just so you know. He's got four points in his last 21 games, has produced no meaningful offense since essentially like early November. So if he's still on your roster, you need to look elsewhere. Pietrangelo is the one who's seeing extra minutes with Bo Meester out. And yeah, he's on a little three-game point streak right now with a goal and two assists and had six shots three games ago, which is pretty good. He has just three shots in his last two games, though, so maybe not rush 
to pick up Petrangelo if he's somehow a free agent in your league, but somebody worth looking at if this Bomeister injury is long-term. Not necessarily because there's a lot of offense to be replaced with Bomeister out, but there's a lot of minutes to be eaten while Bomeister's out, and that's a good chance to at least put up some peripherals. Whew, Brian, okay, that was quite the rundown of a lot of the news from the past week, injuries, outjuries, trades. Still a few players of note and a couple of snoozers I want to get to. Before we get into that, let's thank the patrons of Keeping Carlson. Thank you so much to all the people who have decided to support us with some of their hard-earned money for $5 a month. A lot of patrons are making Brian and my dreams come true. (laughs) So thank you so much for your support. And not only are you helping Brian and I in putting together this podcast, but there's also some pretty cool perks to being a patron. We've got a very active patron-only Facebook group going all the time. I guess I talk about it every week, so you guys know what it is. But if you haven't tried it out yet, try becoming a patron for a month. See how you like it. You can ask fancy hockey questions. People are always chiming in, giving really good advice. As the season nears its end, as we approach the trade deadline, and then as we approach the fancy hockey playoffs, now's the time where you're going to need that extra bit of advice, that extra boost by being able to get the smartest minds in fantasy hockey helping you out with your fantasy hockey decisions. And then also, Brian, we've got a patron cast coming. We're going to do our first patron cast of 2016 soon. We're going to have to schedule that, I guess, this week. Maybe that'll be for next week. Always a lot of fun to get the patrons on the line and do a live show answering the questions. So if you're interested in becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson, check it out, keepingcarlson.com slash patron for more details. If you really want to make our dreams come true, at $15,000 per month, when we get to that goal, Elon and I will start opening up our craft beer and nachos restaurant. But in the meantime, (laughs) we really appreciate all the support we're getting so far. If you listen to this show and you think it's not totally worthless, then I hope you'd feel comfortable letting Elon and I know that by throwing us a buck an episode for the work we do. We do it for us. We do it for you. We do it for the greater good of humanity. We're very happy to do it, and we really appreciate all the support of our patrons so far. The Facebook group has been an amazing place. Some really, really great questions, actually, this week. Elon, there's one you wanted to bring on the show this week. We might not have time for it, though, so we might maybe push it to another week. Or you can join the Facebook group so that you can see it for yourself and actually chime in. There are a lot of really, really smart fantasy minds, and we'd love to have you in there along with us by your supporting the show. Yeah, I'll admit, sometimes I lean on the patrons when we get a tough question on Twitter. Like recently, we got a question from at Rice Boyshirt, probably not pronouncing that right, but he asked, at Keeping Carlson, Keeper League that counts, goals, assists, plus minus, PIM, power play points, shots and goal hits, rank the following, Kuznetsov, Panarin, Dreisaitl, Voracek, and Barkov. And I thought to myself, oh man, that's a hard question. And those are some tough players all in a similar tier. How am I going to rank these guys? I thought, you know what? Let me just ask the patrons. And that led to a really interesting conversation on the patron group. Lots of interesting insights about how to rank those guys. Just a small sample of the types of things we're talking about on the Facebook group. It's fun. Okay, Brian, enough of that. Let's move on to the last players we wanted to talk about this week. How about a few players of note, a few snoozers? I'll get started. I'm going to mention a couple of goalies who we've mentioned a lot. So I'm just going to say their names. Connor Hellebuck. Louis Domingue. These two goalies are fantastic. They've been doing great. Basically, since we mentioned them last, they haven't had a bad start. Hellebuck has a 937 save percentage on the year at this point. Please, no more questions asking if you should pick up Hellebuck or if you should drop him for someone else, as we seem to still get on Twitter every once in a while. We love your questions, but know the answer. You want Connor Hellebuck. I can't imagine at this point that the Jets are going to just bring Pavlik back and send Hellebuck down. It's not going to happen. Like, Hellebuck's been playing every game. Hutchinson has been very weak when he has gotten into the net. So, obviously, it'll be interesting when Pavlik comes back to see how many starts Pavlik can steal back from Connor Hellebuck. But to be honest, I'm not that worried. I think that Hellebuck will still be the starter. The Jets still have a chance to fight for the playoffs. And I think Connor Hellebuck is a great goalie to own. And then Louis Demang. 
you know, Arizona's also fighting for a playoff spot, and Demang is giving the Coyotes goaltending that they haven't had in a really long time. He had a shutout yesterday against Nashville, has a 936 save percentage on the year at this point, and just like with Hellebuck, the backup right now with the starter being injured has not been able to provide a challenge. I don't see any reason why Anders Lindback is going to be kept on the team and Louis Demang being sent down once Mike Smith comes back. That would be crazy. Demang has definitely cemented his place on that Arizona lineup. I agree with you, Elon, and so does Dauber in the midseason fantasy guide. He and I and you all agree that there's no reason for the Coyotes not to wave Lind back when Smith is back because Demang has shown at least that he can handle short spells of a number one workload, even if he collapses in the next little while. With Lindbag, it's all collapse all the time. So Domingue is definitely a step up from that. Most goalies would be, but Domingue especially has proved his mettle. And in Winnipeg, it's kind of a similar situation where a goalie gets injured, essentially the de facto number one in Pavlik. Their top AHL goalie gets recalled in Hellebuck. And now the prior backup is someone who's in danger of being waived when they have three healthy goalies. Now, I can't necessarily see the Jets Doing that, I think Hutchinson might carry a little more value, at least on the trade market, than Lindback would. But it's not owners of Hellebuck who should be concerned. It's owners of Hutchinson who need to be watching their back and watching the clock for when Pavlik comes back and seeing what happens in the immediate days before that happens and after that happens. Because I think it would be ludicrous for the Jets to send Hellebuck down. There would be like riots amongst Winnipeg Jets fans. But, of course, we have seen some terrible, terrible goaltending personnel decisions from the same management team in the past. So I'm just crossing my fingers and hoping that they do the right thing. I can't see Hellebuck seeing fewer than half of his team's games for the rest of the season once Pavlik is healthy. Yeah, you're saying the Hutchinson owners should be worried. There shouldn't be any Hutchinson owners. If you listen to this podcast and you're a Hutchinson owner, it's time to let go. Hey, here's a guy you might want to grab, because this is a guy I want to talk about quickly, Brian. Al Montoya on Florida. He's a backup goalie on Florida. I'm going to call it right now. Is he the best spot start backup goalie in the league? Like, he actually has a 938 save percentage on the year. Six wins in nine games played. He is almost like a guaranteed winner. Pretty close to it, it seemed like. And obviously now I'm jinxing it and he's playing today against Edmonton. And who knows how he'll do. But if you have a guy like Hutchinson, if your league's deep enough that you're holding on to Hutchinson, check to see if Montoya's available. Because also... With the way he's been playing, and Luongo, you know, he's a bit older. I wonder if Florida's going to take advantage and let Luongo rest a bit. Who's, By the way, Luongo's also having an amazing season. I don't think that Montoya's going to steal his job, but I wonder if as the end of the season approaches, if Montoya will get more starts since he's proven that he's able to really hold his own. Okay, sure. Montoya's been good, and yeah, he does make a really good spot start. He's been pretty dependable, I'd say, up there with Brian Elliott actually, in terms of the best guy that you can count on to add for one day if you need to stream a start to win your matchup. But it would be a bit more relevant, I suppose, if Roberto Luongo was not posting a 9.31 save percentage currently through 33 games. His goals against average is just barely above two. He has been so good throughout this season, and I just don't see a ton of an opening for Montoya this season. He is doing a little bit of work to resuscitate what might have been essentially a lost career. He was a big prospect. I still remember when he was playing the World Juniors Championship. He was the scary American goaltender that the Canadians were going to have to beat. And he's been a bit of a journeyman since, playing for Phoenix, the Islanders, the Jets, and a bunch of AHL teams as well. This could be the turn he needs. It's a little late in his career to be doing it. He's 30 years old. But the good news for him, I suppose, is if he can keep this up for another year or two, Roberto Luongo is 36 years old right now. So maybe there will be a little window where he can be a number one goalie 
Bradley or part of a tandem in Florida. Yeah, like I said, I don't think Montoya is going to steal the job, but I just wonder if he has earned himself a bit more time. I guess we'll see. He's great, though. Great spot start. I'd rather have him than Elliott in a given day. And Florida, by the way, they're second in the Eastern Conference, very quietly. Like, they're first in their division. They've been an amazing team. We kind of called it last year with all these young players doing well. You know, Barkov has been amazing. Their goaltending has been fantastic. Ekblad's fantastic. Like, they've got a really good core. And, you know, Florida might make some noise this year. We might be talking about them near the end of the year as a sleeper to challenge for the cup. I don't know. Maybe I would uh, place a bet right now on Florida while their odds are still low, if they still are. They're riding a bit of a PDO wave right now. Their shooting percentage and their save percentage are both pretty high, and that's why we've seen them rattle off 11 consecutive wins. So what we've seen over the last, like, three weeks from them isn't necessarily their true talent level. But yeah, they are becoming a threat in the Eastern Conference and will be an interesting team to watch in the first round of the playoffs this year. Okay, next I want to talk about a couple of teams who have really shaken up their lines. Let's start with San Jose. Maybe I'll refer to them as the reverse Florida Panthers because they have not been doing well lately. I actually went to a San Jose Sharks game against Colorado a couple of weeks ago and it was not pretty. Martin Jones hasn't been great and they are shaking things up. They actually had this big win, 7 nothing yesterday, against the Leafs. And a lot of Couture owners, there was a guy in our patron group saying, What the heck? 7 goals by San Jose and not a point for Couture? That's the kind of season it's been, I guess. And, you know, Couture, I think, will be okay. But these lines are interesting now. They've got Thomas Hurdle playing with the Joes on the first line. Pavelski and Thornton, by the way, Pavelski and Thornton still doing great. Hurdle had a great game yesterday. And then they've got Marlowe playing with Nieto and Joel Ward. And then Couture with Donskoy and Tommy Winkle. So they split up Marlowe and Couture. And, you know, with a seven-goal performance like they had, I assume that's going to be what they're going to stick with for a little while. So that's not great news, I would say, for Logan Couture. But... It is great news for Tomas Hurdle, and San Jose has a nice schedule next week, four games. He might be a really nice short-term ad, especially while he's on that top line. I feel like this is a conversation we have like four to five times a year, and right now this is time number three or four where we say, well, who's on the top line with the Joes? Oh, it's Thomas Hurdle. How's he doing? He's doing all right. Is it going to sustain? Eh, probably not. He's probably not going to be on there for very long, and I think it's the exact same thing. This time around, he does have five points in his last five games, bolstered by that three-point effort in that 7 nothing drubbing of Toronto. I'm not sure you can glean a whole lot from that. In the five games before these last fives, he had nothing. Of course, he wasn't necessarily seeing the same usage and line mates as he's seeing now. I suppose he's someone you can keep an eye on. And Elon, you mentioned his upcoming schedule might give him some opportunities to be able to put in goals or get assists against teams like Dallas and Edmonton and Calgary. And that's a fair point. So if you're looking to stream somebody over the next couple weeks, he could be worth a look. But as always with Hurdle, I think he's got marginal fantasy value in a long-term window. So you're looking at a half-point-per-game player who you're trying to catch for one of his short spurts when he is on the top line, which I suppose he's in the midst of right now. And the other team I wanted to talk about in terms of switching up their lines is the Dallas Stars. It was announced that they were going to be splitting up Ben and Sagan Clearly, that didn't last. They had Sagan with Yanmark and Patrick Sharp, and Ben with Eakin and Colton Sevior, and then leaving Spezza with Nichushkin and like Antoine Roussel. Looks like they didn't even stick with that for a whole game. By the end of their game against Minnesota yesterday, they were back to Ben and Sagan on the top line with Patrick Sharp. They lost that game, but, you know, how long are they really going to keep those guys separate? I guess we'll see. The main thing to note, though, on Dallas, I would say, is Patrick Sharp. Brian, did you know that he is on a 12-game point streak right now? He's been on fire. And playing with Ben and Sagan, you know, you'd expect him to do well. But this is 
otherworldly. Like, this is really great for Patrick Sharp owners who were, of course, excited when he got traded to Dallas from Chicago. We expected that he was going to be in a good position to produce. This is fantastic. Six shots yesterday against Minnesota. No goals, obviously, and that's probably a big part of why Dallas lost. But he's taking tons of shots getting the points. A real stud in fantasy right now. I guess there's not too much to say. Obviously, you can't grab Patrick Sharp. If you have him, you know, I don't think I would sell high, at least in a one-year league. He's doing great. And, you know, next year also probably he'll still be on Dallas. He'll probably still be on that top line. I wouldn't be surprised. I'm really liking Patrick Sharp. So am I, Elon. And he's actually moved into the fourth highest scoring spot on the Dallas roster this year, just ahead of Jason Spezza, one point behind John Klingberg for third on the team. And yeah, this has been a dream season for him, especially for how nightmarish the end of last year was. A lot of people wondering if he still had any gas left in the tank. He's getting older. He had a decreased role with the Blackhawks. But now that his role has increased once again to be on that top line, with Ben and Sagan. That is a great place to be producing from. As long as he stays there, he's in good shape. When he's not there, he'll obviously see a decrease in the amount of points he can produce. But this year and into next year too, I have fewer concerns today than I did at the start of the season about his ability to produce. Yeah, and it's worth noting, you know, Jason Spezza is also doing really well, 15 points in his last 16 games, even though he's not playing with those two stars. He's a star on his own. And I don't mean this as a pun because he's on the Dallas Stars. (laughs) And also, here's a name I wanted to throw out there. Alex Goligoski, he's someone who I think a lot of fantasy players have forgotten about. You know, ever since Klingberg came in and took the number one power play role, it's like, eh, Goligoski is just like the second guy on Dallas. But he actually has nine points in his last 16 games. Definitely still, you know, fantasy relevant. He gives you blocks. And I guess with Trevor Daly out of the picture this season, Goligoski has been able to produce like he did before, like 20 points right now in 44 games. That's a decent pace for a defenseman. That's uh, almost a 40-point pace. And okay, like I said, we had a request from a patron, Dan, wanting us to do snoozers. He said, it's easy to tell who to pick up. You just look at who's hot. But the hard thing is deciding who to drop from your team. So I'm going to give you some names of people who obviously depends on how deep your league is. Some of these names you definitely can't drop if it's a very deep league, but you might want to consider if it's a shallow league. So you can decide for yourself. I'm going to give you some names of people who are struggling and who I'm not so certain they'll be able to pick it up this year. Brian will obviously give his thoughts. I want to start with someone that I know is going to be controversial, especially for Brian, because he loves this guy. But Andrew Ladd, let's talk about Andrew Ladd, okay? Currently, he's got 23 points in 41 games, which is very disappointing. We were hoping for, you know, 65-point season like he's been doing for the past few years. And normally I would say, you know what, he's slumping a bit, but he's like on the top line and on the top power play. But you know what? Andrew Ladd is not on the top line right now. He's actually not even on the second line. Lately, he's been playing on the third line in Winnipeg, playing with Adam Lowry and Alex Burmistrov. That's right. Another thing you generally want to look for if you see a player slumping is shots on goal. You know, Ladd hasn't been shooting too, too much. Like, he's been getting one or two shots a game. I guess he had a couple threes recently, but, you know, not setting the world on fire. Obviously, not much is going in. Only three points in his last 10 games. Brian, I'm curious to get your thoughts. I have a feeling you're going to say that he's going to bounce back. He's going to get back on the top line. But I don't know, maybe in a shallower league, it's time to start considering Andrew Ladd as a snoozer. This has not been a good season for one of my perennial favorites, Andrew Ladd. And yeah, he's been on the third line for like the better part of the last 10 games. But he's going to have to be getting most of his production there because yeah, the prospects are just not good at even strength. Even though he continues to have similar rates to previous seasons 
in points per 60, in shots per 60, and shot attempts per 60. In fact, he's getting more shot attempts per 60 at even strength than he has at any time in the last four seasons. He's just not getting enough minutes to really translate those into goals. His shooting percentage is down as well, and of course his line mates are not as skilled at converting any of his passes or rebounds from his shots into goals themselves. So it's been an unfortunate season for Andrew Ladd. But I think Snoozer is still a bit of a stretch because we know exactly why this is happening, and I can't see how he stays in this role the rest of the way through, especially with the way that Winnipeg has been going lately. Like, they are lucky to be playing 500 hockey in the last month or so, and I feel like if they want to really turn the ship around, it's going to take Andrew Ladd back in the top six to make that happen. I don't think it's helping them any to try and spread out the offense, so to speak, by having him down on that third line. I also don't think it's a punishment for poor play. I really do think they are just trying to even out their top line so that they have a top nine rather than a top six. But it's just not working right now. So I don't think you should start thinking about dropping Andrew Ladd unless you're in a shallow league. If this continues for another 10 games, then it is really starting to be worrisome that he doesn't find his way off that third line. But I wouldn't raise the alarm just yet. All right. Well, then in that case, maybe one man's snoozer is another man's buy low. So maybe the two people with those opinions could meet up and make a trade. I guess, Brian, you might want to contact the cupful owner who has Andrew Ladd in your league. Maybe you'll be able to get a deal for him if you think he's going to bounce back. Well, when you put it that way and I have to put my money where my mouth is, I'm not sure I'm looking to acquire him either until (laughs) I see him exit that third line spot. Well, there you go. Okay, the next guy I have as a snoozer, how about Jason Pominville? This guy's having a brutal, brutal season. He's only got 19 points in 41 games. That's less than a half a point per game. No points at all in his last eight games. He's seen his ice time go down. He only played 14 and a half minutes his last game. He's been at like 13, 14, 15 for the last like seven games. He hasn't been in a position to score. For a while, he was on the top line and top power play. That isn't even the case anymore. He was playing on the second line in the last game with Granlin and Nino Ryder. The top line has been Zucker, Parise, and Koivu. So a nice opportunity for Zucker, by the way. And even the top power play has been pominville list. It's been Granlin, Koivu, Parise, and Vanek as the forwards on that unit. So I don't see a big opportunity for Pominville to get the points. If his minutes are down, if he's not on a good line anymore, well, he's on a decent line, but he's not on the top line anymore and he hasn't been doing it lately, I think we might be seeing the end of the production from Jason Pominville, at least on Minnesota, at least this year. Yeah, and unlike Andrew Ladd, his rate stats have gone down. He's seeing fewer shots per 60, fewer points per 60. His ice time hadn't necessarily decreased before his scoring did. He was seeing a lot of ice and a lot of opportunity without being able to do much of it. It's funny because we talked about him, I think, several times going into the season. Is on the wild. You've got Parisi who's going to lead the team, and then you've got Pominville who you can count on for close to 30 goals, 30 assists every season, no problem. Something is happening this season. I can't tell what but it's showing up in his numbers. The only real aberration that I can see... Actually, that's a lie. I suppose there are a few aberrations that I can see. His shooting percentage is down, his on-ice shooting percentage is down, and his IPP is down. He's only getting in on about uh, just over half of the goals that are scored while he's on the ice compared to 70 or even 60% was his low watermark before this season. I still have faith that he'll bounce back, but I'm not sure what it's going to take for him to get there. So I think actually in a lot of leagues, until further notice, Jason Pominville is a snoozer, but that's not counting him out at all from being able to produce down the road. 
I just would want to wait until it happens because there aren't a whole lot of signs of life with him right now. Yeah, Brian, I know you love to have faith in these guys who have been doing it for many years. I'm going to call it more so than Andrew Ladd. I think that Pominville is like a snoozer. I don't see him bouncing back this year. I think he's just going to keep going down. I don't like this decreased ice time. I think it's a sign that the coach is losing faith in him. I don't think it's going to happen. Definitely a lot of worrying markers. The shooting percentage is the only thing that makes me think that he could turn it around if he just saw a couple more bounces go his way. He's shooting just three and a half percent at even strength, which is like what we expect defensemen to shoot at even strength, not top six forwards. Yeah, but he's also only getting like one or two shots every game lately. But okay. We'll see. <laughs> I still have a couple more snoozers for you, okay? These are guys. By the way, I'm doing the next level of snoozers. I'm not doing these obvious guys. I'm talking about guys who used to produce here. So, Chris Kunitz. We were excited about him for a stretch. You know, he started the year like on the third line, or he quickly moved to the third line, was irrelevant on Pittsburgh. Then, all of a sudden, he was back on the top line playing with Crosby. He even got on the top power play at one point. He got added in a lot of leagues, especially in leagues that count hits, by the way, because he has still definitely been producing there. So he's not a snoozer if it's a hits league. But if it's a points league, he has only two points in his last ten games. No points in his last five games. He's still on the top line with Crosby, but he hasn't done anything with it. So I'd be scared about how long this will last before they shake things up. He's not on the top power play anymore. So again, just I don't see the opportunity there for Chris Kunitz. I guess when you're on a line with Crosby, there's always a chance. So I'd still rather have Kunitz than, say, Jason Pominville, believe it or not. And he did have four shots in the last game. But considering his ownership, like considering how high it went up, I'll bet you a lot of these leagues, if you picked up Chris Kunitz a few weeks ago because you saw him in this great position, it might be time to reassess and see if there's anyone else available. Yeah, I think there are only four Pittsburgh forwards worth having right now. Of course, Malkin. Crosby is back on top of things with 10 points in his last nine. Malkin by the way, is 12 points in his last 10. And then I'd say Hornquist has finally started his resurgence. He's got seven points in his last 10. Kessel has six in his last 10. But aside from that, nobody is scoring above a half point per game pace. Kunitz especially, which is two points in his last 10. I suppose the other name that comes up when you think of Kunitz, aside from Hornquist, is David Perron, who has five points in his last 10. So Pittsburgh is starting to figure it out. At least we have Hornquist and Kessel starting to get going a little bit. Crosby is definitely on track with the production that we would have expected to see from him all year. But yeah, there aren't a whole lot of reasons to want to have Chris Kunitz on your team right now. And I wonder if you should also be watching David Perron as a future snoozer candidate as well. Oh yeah, I just had Perron as someone you didn't have on your roster anyways. He definitely would also be in that category, even though they're both on the top line with Crosby. But basically, I agree with you. The top power play unit are the people I want on Pittsburgh and pretty much no one else. And okay, Brian, I have one more for you, and then you could give me yours, then we'll end the show. But okay, this is a guy also like Kunitz, who at the start of the year was off people's radars because he wasn't doing anything. Then he had that awesome stretch, but lately he's gone cold. I'm talking about Jeff Skinner. He had all those goals. There was that stretch where we were loving him, and his ownership in ESPN skyrocketed to pretty much 100%. Now it's down to 72, and for good reason, he only has... Five points in his last 10 games, only one assist in his last four games. And the thing I'm really concerned about regarding Skinner is that his ice time is down. He only played 11 minutes against Columbus two games ago and then 14, almost 15 minutes against Columbus recently. And that's, you know, lower than what he'd been getting. Also, his shots on goal have really tanked. And I remember picking up Skinner thinking like he was on this hot streak. And even if he didn't keep getting the bounces, I would really enjoy the shots. But in his last two games, he's only had one shot each. Then you get a two, then a one, then a three. So we're not seeing the five and six shots on goal games that we were seeing before from Jeff Skinner. Maybe this has to do with 
DiGiuseppe being injured. Definitely his production has gone down since that happened. Brian, you're laughing. Is that because I mispronounced that name? No, I just think it's unlikely that DiGiuseppe has like a huge effect on the Carolina offense. I don't know. Well, take a look. I mean, they were doing well together on that second line. Now it looks like Skinner's on the third line. He's playing with Riley Nash and Chris Terry. The second line, I would say, is Jordan Stahl, Andre Nestrasil, and Joachim Nordstrom. Hard to say which one is which. So definitely that line with Nestrasil is getting more ice time. Then, of course, there's Stahl, Lindholm, and Christopher Stieg as the number one line. Not feeling too great about Jeff Skinner lately. I'm actually considering dropping him in the cupful soon. So anyone listening in the Binghamton division, send me a trade offer if you want. Well, I guess, why would you? Now that I'm saying I might be dropping him. (laughs) Okay, well, I've just shown my hand. But yeah, I'd say Jeff Skinner might be a snoozer at this point. I think definite snoozer. What you want from Jeff Skinner are goals and shots and he's only produced one goal in his last 12 games we all did get super excited in that stretch where he was scoring a ton in fact he had 10 goals on 39 shots in a certain stretch which felt like sort of justice for all the low shooting percentages he had been seeing but I think he might just be more of a low percentage shooter high volume low percentage of converting them into goals and with Elon as you said his declining shot rates at the moment there's even less of a chance of those shots being converted into goals, which makes him probably about the same or not a whole lot better than a lot of options on your waiver wire. Okay, yeah. Snoozer, Jeff Skinner. All right, Brian, how about give us one last guy before we end the show? We may have referenced Anders Nilsson's declining role in episodes past, but now I think it's official. It's safe. We can call him a snoozer for the time being. He has not started the last four games for his team, and in the four games that Kim Talbot did start instead. He's had three starts that have been quality or very close to quality starts. The last one was kind of a stinker, was an 885 save percentage game against Tampa, but he did shut out the Carolina Hurricanes before that. So I think he's working his way to entrenching himself as the number one goalie, or at least the number one A goalie, now that he's getting ice time again. Talbot has actually appeared in nine of the Oilers' last 10 games played, Sometimes in relief, sometimes he got yanked, but in any case, he's there in the crease on an almost nightly basis, and he is, for all intents and purposes, the Edmonton Oilers' number one or number one A goalie right now. So if you still have Nilsson and are counting on him for starts, even at like the tandem sort of level, I think you're snoozing on him and you need to drop him. In his last three appearances, he's had an 895, an 867, and an 828 save percentage. There's no reason to hang on to this guy on your team right now. There are more valuable things you can do with that roster spot. For starters, if Cam Talbot is available, try him. Yeah, Brian, I guess you called it. Back when Nilsson was doing well and I was really badgering you saying, why aren't you going to admit that Nilsson's so good? You held your ground, or for the most part you did, and now you're definitely being proven to be right. Cam Talbot is definitely the right option to have in Edmonton right now. He's doing great. Who knows if it'll switch again at some point in the year, but especially with Connor McDavid coming back, now's the time that you might want to have an Edmonton goalie, and right now the one to have is Cam Talbot. Brian, What a fun show we've had. We've talked about so many players. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We really appreciate it. Let us know what you think of the show. You could tweet at us, at Keeping Carlson. You know, also follow us on Twitter. We're tweeting every once in a while. Brian, I don't get your tweet from this morning, to be honest. Well, I don't get it either. Facebook keeps suggesting that I join the group for fans of Frank D'Angelo's, like, community access cable show called Being Frank. And I'm just not sure why they think I might be interested. Okay, well, aside from that, I think there are some pretty good tweets that Brian's been making from our account. He tweeted about how Robin Leonard did 
in his AHL start. Overall, we just have fun on Twitter. And also, you can tweet at us. You ask us fancy hockey questions. You get short answers, not the types of answers you're going to get on the patron-only Facebook group. But, you know, we still want to help out as best we can. Also, if you're a fan of the show, we'd really appreciate it if you could give us a five-star review on iTunes. That's a great way to help give us exposure without costing yourself anything, aside from a couple of clicks of your mouse. And then, like I said already, you could support the show even more by becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson's. You could check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron for that. But, Brian, I am done. Let's cue that outro music. And why don't you read us the credits? All right. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Roto World, War on Ice, Hockey Analysis, Yahoo Sports, ESPN Fantasy Hockey, and of course, I feel like it's rolled up with Dauber Hockey, but Frozen Pool is a fantastic tool over there. Thanks, Brian. Great job as always. Looking forward to doing this all again with you next week. We're going to be live in person. That'll be fun. It sure will, but until then, keep on keeping Carl Sun.